Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I can make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did, not, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. The beginning question is the question pretty much every week, but especially as we're looking at the transfiguration, it's the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And if we walked around this room and asked who is Jesus, many of you would give me the correct answer. Some of you would have wider ranges of answers. And there if we walked down the street out, out and into any restaurant and asked who do you say Jesus is, most people would say, I don't care. Why, what does it matter? Those of us who are in a room like this know the correct answer is he's the savior and the son of God, right? He died for my sins, etc., etc. But what does that mean? What does that actually mean to you? Are you able to articulate what you think is supposed to be said if a Sunday school teacher asked it? Or has it changed you? Christianity is not a moral code about how to live a better life. It is news about a person that Christianity claims is the God of the universe, that you are invited to know. The Gospels talk about that, that we are invited into a relationship with the one who reorients our relationship to everything. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is called a gospel because it means good news. It's news about something. It's revealing something. And we come to the end of the season of Epiphany, which means revealing or manifesting something. It's when something is seen, shown, understood. And so we've been in the Gospel of Matthew walking through the ways in which Jesus' actions were perceived and understood by others. His words were seen and, and heard and understood by others. And it was the revealing of Jesus through his teaching, his acts, his death, his resurrection. And it's constantly causing us to ask, if we're listening well, who is Jesus? Not just who is Jesus in the big way, but so what? What does it mean to you? 
This morning we're gonna look at Matthew 17, which we just had read, which is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And we're gonna see what happens in the, in the passage, what it means about who Jesus is, and ultimately what that could mean for us. So the context is right there in verse one of chapter 17. Let me go ahead and read it. Verse one of chapter 17 says, and after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So just from the beginning of this chapter, we know something is happening. And if you've been the sort of person who's read other parts of the Bible or heard it, when fewer people go up a mountain, it usually means something related to God is going to happen, okay? The mountain from the Old Testament times of Abraham and unto Moses and carrying on to the prophets, the mountain with a few or one person is a place of revelation, of meeting God. And so you expect to meet God in this space. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his closest buddies. He's friends with the 12. He's friends with the 50 or 100 that are running around with them. But the three, Peter, James, and John, are the ones he runs around with the most. We we are supposed to see them as his closest best friends. And he takes them up onto the mountain. So that's the, the visual setting. But we also have a literary setting. If you actually read not only Matthew 17, but the the end of the chapter before it, what we have going on is what's called a chiasm. So, you know, it's super unnecessary to get into this, but I'm gonna get into it for just a moment here. A chiasm is like a cross or a mountain where you have a structure in literature, especially in Hebrew and Old Testament and Greek and New Testament writings, where you have uh, a theme that's repeated in a very short amount of space. Sometimes an entire gospel does this, but in our passage, you have the, the, the orientation is A, B, C, B, A, okay? So what's talked about in A is talked about again later on in A. So same sort of theme is going on. Okay, tracking? The chiasm in this passage, which is centered on the transfiguration, begins a few verses earlier when he's talking about the cross. So the A is the cross of Christ in verses 24 to 26. The very next verses talk about the glory of Christ. He is coming again in his kingdom. So he goes from his death to his glorification. And then we get the transfiguration. And then just after that, he's talking with his disciples about how he will be raised from the dead, his glorification. And then he will suffer, okay? So you have the A, B, C, B, A. And when you have a chiasm, what's in the center, what's in the middle is the most important. It's what uh, gives meaning to what's around it in the bookends. You understand what's happening in the bookends because of what's in the middle. So you understand the death of Christ because of what transpires on that mountain in the transfiguration. It gives meaning and purpose to what sits on the ends. And so we read on in verses two and three. (coughs) Ooh, that sounded good. (coughs) It's fun, let's try that again. No, I won't, don't. Some of you have that anxiety, right? Don't pop a balloon either, I've heard. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And so here we have Jesus 
reflecting something that happened to Moses when he goes up on the mountain and comes back glowing. The bright light is the depiction of God. So Jesus himself is emanating this brightness, this too hard to look at light. And then there appeared with him Moses and Elijah. Now, if you've been in churches that talked about this, one of the things that's most often talked about is that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And there may be some echoes of that, but most commentators, if you read them, will tell you, again, this is a little bit of just kind of getting into the weeds, that Elijah was not a written prophet. The way that the Bible was understood in Jewish circles was the law and the prophets. The law was Genesis through like Deuteronomy. It's kind of the first five books of the Bible, and it tells God's covenant with Israel. Moses gives that covenant. Later on, the prophets declare what God is going to do, but those are the written prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Elijah was not a prophet who wrote. He was a miracle prophet who lived in the time of the kings, but he didn't really write anything down. So he doesn't really represent the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, as a Jewish person in the first couple centuries would have understood. But actually there's something more going on here because Moses and Elijah were messianic figures. They were a part of the first century expectation of the coming of the kingdom. There was a desire and an expectation that one day God would come in person to right all wrongs. And through that, he would bring a Messiah. But the prophecies of the Old Testament really hinged on a couple of key ones in the Jewish mindset of that first century when Jesus was walking around Palestine. And it involved Moses and Elijah as two key figures. The hope of Israel (coughs) was that According to Deuteronomy 18, God would raise up a prophet like Moses. So Moses is the great prophet of God, the one who sees God, hears from God, and delivers God's covenant. God would raise up a prophet like Moses before the great day of the Lord. And then Malachi 4.4, basically the last, second to last verse of the entire Old Testament in the way that the Christians have written it together, says, I will send Elijah. I will send Elijah, who had died years before, except actually he hadn't died. Elijah was one of these people who never died. He was taken up into the heavens. And there's some mystery around Moses' death as well. Jewish first century thought talked of Enoch from the ancient past, Moses and Elijah as the deathless ones. Okay, so there's something going on there. I will send Elijah before the great day of the Lord comes. The prophet, my prophet, my prophets will come. There they are with Jesus. But then, after some dramatic events, only Jesus remains. Jesus is portrayed as the one who is superior to Moses and Elijah. And here to carry out the messianic expectations, the messianic mission of God, to arrive and judge and restore all things. In order to make it very clear, we get the cloud and the voice thing, right? In verse five, a cloud envelops the disciples, the three, and it envelops Jesus, Moses, Elijah. The cloud envelops them, the cloud of God's presence and glory. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so when we ask the question, who is Jesus? 
It's very clear from statements like this, from the way that the Gospels portray Jesus, that Jesus is not Mr. Rogers. He's not just going around teaching people how to be nice neighbors to each other, right? Rather, he is God moved into the neighborhood, saying, won't you be my neighbor? It's a very different thing. God of the universe enters the neighborhood, inviting you to be his neighbor. But did the disciples realize this at first? Do they even realize it ever? It's, it's one of these things that we are constantly uh, thrown by Peter, James, John, the ones closest, his closest disciples are often confused about who he is. But actually, Peter sort of gets it right here. They, they all do, because the first thing they do upon this voice, this cloud, is they fall on their faces. Verse six talks, tells about that. They fall on their faces and they are terrified. What they are experiencing, they know about. As Jewish men, they had studied the scriptures, and they knew when there's a cloud and a voice, it's bad. It's bad for any human, because this is what's called a theophany, a visible manifestation or representation of God. In the Old Testament, God is very often represented by cloud and fire. So here there's no fire, but it's a bright light, very bright light like fire, and the cloud and the voice of God, the manifestation of God is falling upon them. And Peter, Peter has a great idea. And, and sometimes we mock Peter, but here he's actually maybe not far from, from wrong. In verse four it says, hey, hey Jesus, good thing I'm here. I know how to build stuff. I will build three tents. Now what he's doing here, people have talked about like he's trying to like contain them up there and he just wants to keep them in close to him and they're just gonna stay up there forever and he wants to stay up on the mountaintop. But actually what Peter is doing is the sort of thing any Jewish person should do, which is when you see the glory of God, you put it in a tent. It's what they did in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, the, the Lord God descends upon Mount Sinai and actually, originally, God invites all Israel up to see him. But they know. They know you cannot actually see the Lord. We cannot go before his presence. We are unclean. We are unholy. He is a holy God, and he is holy other. And if we go up on that mountain, we will be undone and destroyed. The Lord even says to Moses, who goes up, you cannot see my face meaning you can't be in my full glory and presence. My glory is too great. And we've talked about what glory is. Glory is the immovable mover. It's the stronger thing kind of pushing on the, the weaker thing, right? If you're walking in downtown DC and a grand piano is being lifted out of a window and the cables break and the grand piano drops on you, one of the two of you will have greater glory. It'll be proven after the fall of the piano. The greater thing destroys the lesser thing, right? God is the immovable mover, the great and glorious one. We cannot stand in his presence in that sense. And so the Lord makes a way for it and says, okay, build a tabernacle, I will dwell there, and later a temple, I will build there, I will dwell there. That's what Peter's doing. He's like, we cannot be near this. We're a little bit afraid. Can we put up some tents, right? Tim Keller, talking about this, commentating on this passage, said most religions have recognized that there's a wide gap of some kind between deity and humanity. 
Therefore, many religions have temples with priests and rituals to mediate the gap and protect humans from the divine, from the divine presence. The tabernacle, the temple, these tents are the dwelling place of God in his holiness and glory to protect humanity. But something else is going on here. Because when they finally look up, they see only Jesus. Jesus himself alone, just Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. They see what we're meant to see, is that Jesus, Jesus is the bridge between humanity and God. He is the temple, the dwelling place of God to end all temples. He is the sacrifice on the cross to end the need for all sacrifices to mediate relationship with God. He is the priest that allows all of us to become priests of God. You know, we all long for meaning and transcendence and truth and the eternal in some way. The gospel message is that what we long for has been brought near to us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have life eternal. I love how Jesus interacts with the disciples in this. I wanted to, you know, kind of look at this after the other verses. In verse 7, we read what Jesus does after Peter, James, and John are terrified. It says, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Jesus is glowing. You know, Moses and Elijah appear. Peter's going to build some tabernacles, and the Lord's voice descends along with the cloud of glory. And they are terrified and fall on their faces. But Jesus comes to them. In the Gospels, people are constantly coming to Jesus. You know who comes to Jesus in the Gospels? People come to Jesus when they have a need. They are sick, they're in trouble, they need forgiveness, they need help, they're confused, they need somebody to save them. People in need constantly come to Jesus, but here we see Jesus in compassion coming to the disciples, it's the same word there, who are terrified. In both cases, whether it's Jesus coming to them or people coming to Jesus, the key attitude is need. The lame and the blind and the sick and the possessed are in need. Here, the disciples are in need. A couple verses after the ones we read, Jesus and the disciples go back down into Capernaum, I think it is, and they meet a man whose son is dealing with all sorts of illnesses and possession by the demonic, and the father, the dad, is desperate. He is desperate. In Mark's account of it, Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, I I believe, but help my unbelief. He's doubting. He's doubting. It's okay. He's skeptical that Jesus can do this. He just is needy because he can't do anything for his son. He cannot save his son. That's the posture of Jesus coming, of meeting Jesus. It's the posture of need, which is very different than our basic posture of competence and self-reliance. 
It's one of the problems with being very capable people, highly educated people who are very successful, is that we are very competent. We can do everything. You know, we don't want people to help us. We want to prove that we can do it on our own. We want to be self-reliant. And that posture is just really never able to see Jesus. There's a posture of knowing you need something in which Jesus will come to you. And then Jesus touches them. Something so human and powerful. It's very simple, right? But most of you who are over age 40 can remember very viscerally the reaction to those images coming out of Romania after the wall came down and the pictures of orphanages on 60 Minutes or whatever it was, just filled with babies, two years old, three years old, just rocking themselves, right? Frail, malnourished, dealing with all sorts of physical, emotional, mental deficits. And the studies that were done on those kids were they were never touched, never held. The sheer power of human touch, of a mother's touch, a father's touch, even if that is it, not the actual physical mother, the biological mother or father, just the touch of another human in those early stages is so powerful for development. A lot of studies have been done on, the, on that, on the power of touch, especially in the early ages, and suggests that um, touch can communicate positive emotions in a way that's as powerful or more powerful than words can. Now, one of the studies made me laugh because it was one of these university studies that, that looked at adult men and women and touch, and could you, could you read and understand what the touch meant? And so what they were doing was they would say, hey, we want you to approach this person, and, you're, and they know you're going to touch them, but you're going to touch them, and your touch is supposed to demonstrate compassion or anger or concern. But they don't see you, right? So they just feel the touch. And people could read it very well. They could read the emotion that was being expressed in the touch, except... Women had a hard time understanding men trying to express compassion. <laughs> um, and men could not at all tell when a woman through touch was trying to express anger. <laughs> you know, like the man's like, I'm really I'm showing compassion. She's like, yeah, that hurts. Um, something about the men-women thing wasn't hitting there. But we can express our feelings of love and appreciation and encouragement through simple touch. There's a physical and a relational element to it. This is the incarnation at its best. It is Jesus saying, it's okay, through his hand on their shoulder. The God of the universe is touching them. The humanity of the whole episode, of just even that simple phrase, is so powerful. It's Jesus in the midst of their terror saying, I'm here, I'm really with you. You have no reason for fear. Now what's profound in all that's going on here is that incarnational moment. It is the glory of of the presence of God has swallowed these men up. Peter, James, and John are swallowed up by the cloud and glory of God. But they are not destroyed. 
the very presence of God has enveloped them. Everyone else that they had ever expected who had gone into the presence of God would be destroyed. And there they are in the presence of God in absolute terror. This is the end. But they're not destroyed. And when they look up, it's Jesus, their close friend, helping them up, grabbing their hands, saying, get up, guys. It's just me. Yeah, it's just you, but, you know. The majesty and awesomeness of the almighty God that they had believed in their whole life is their pal, Jesus. Oh, it's just you, buddy. Who are you? You know, every culture, every worldview, every religion has some element of trying to hold on to transcendence and truth. Some version of trying to understand truth, what it's all about. And they each have these categories that they step into, okay? A traditional religions, traditional religions have a view of a creator God who is the judge of all things. Many of you have experienced that in traditions you've been a part of. The traditional religion has this fear of God that you have to obey that God. It is a transcendent, holy other God who is judge, and you better obey him, but it's not very personal. It's very impersonal. Greek philosophy, which is what most of the New Testament is writing into, it's writing into a Greek and Roman culture that was massively shaped by Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy had this view of the transcendent that was called the logos, or wisdom, or truth. And the idea was that there is truth and logos and wisdom. There's this just kind of philosophical wisdom that, that holds everything together. And when you tap into that, when you really understand it, you could put everything in its place. And the goal of Greek philosophy really was finding out the order of things as they should be and living into your duty. So you live into the duty within the, the realm of the logos, of wisdom, of philosophy, and you master your passions by fulfilling the orders that are before you according to the universe. Not too dissimilar is Eastern religions that tend to, some Eastern religions, I should say, that, that have this idea of a life force. It's almost like the force in Star Wars or something like that, in, in Taoism in particular. This life force, but the goal of many Eastern religions is the elimination of desire. Not master your passions, but kill all your desire. And ultimately, you become one with the universe and you disappear. No more you. It's very impersonal in that sense. Modern individualism has this kind of mixed up view that's very personal but not very transcendent, which is basically you decide what's right for you. You know, you, you, can, you can do a little bit of religion, a little bit of, uh, you know, go to church, a little bit of CrossFit, you find your own little cult, and there you go, and you'll, you'll be happy, right? You figure it out. It's very personal. Modern individualistic secularism is like catered to you, whatever you want. But it's also very small. The God, the transcendent, doesn't exist. There's no eternal. The highest truth is you. And you're not that big. Jesus, Christianity claims, is the Logos become human? And in that way, as, as one 
philosopher put it, Christianity transformed all of Western thought because it elevated humanity in a way that Greek philosophy could not, and it personalized the relationship with God in a way that no religion ever had. Christianity makes the claim that in Jesus, the almighty creator God, yes, the judge of the universe, values you, cares about you. As the disciples realized in that moment, the holy other God is your friend. And God, this God, invites us into that as he did with Peter, James, and John. Have you ever had the experience of being astounded, amazed, and blown away by the grandeur of God? I mean, I've, I've talked about this before, but it's sometimes for me in those creation moments when this years ago when I was out um, on this dock in the Adirondacks looking up at the stars at night and one of those moonless nights and just the billions upon billions in the grandeur and majesty and believing and knowing in the creator of these things. A good friend of mine who has struggled with faith and, you know, doubt, and I'm not sure where he is, but he, he goes back to a memory that holds him a little bit in faith to an event that happened in a canoe that was very similar. I don't remember the details of it, but it was basically that was so powerful for him that even though it was decades earlier, it was that presence of God moment for him. I find it sometimes in studying theology, as weird as that is, right? But it isn't weird. It's actually when you plumb the depths of who God is. And I find that the more I read, the more I understand, the greater my awareness of the God of power and mercy and love. And the profoundness of it sometimes can give me chills as I'm reading. Have you ever been astounded and amazed and blown away by the grandeur of God? And at the same time, melted by the loving personal care of that God. Sometimes those are in the more simple moments, like that cup of coffee on the patio and the cardinal lands, and you're like, ah, oh, thanks, God. I love cardinals. He cares about me. He knows me. Last summer, we did a summer of discernment, and many of you took the time to listen to God, sometimes for the first time, or at least even just one evening, stopping to listen to God and hear from God. And what you guys shared and what you wrote down was so personal and so profound in that sense. It was that voice of God in your head saying, you are beloved, I have chosen you, you are my daughter, you're a good dad. It's the assuring hand of God saying, it's okay, I'm with you, I love you, rise, get up. Jesus reveals to us God in a way that is at the same time very powerful and very personal. Lucy Pevensey, you know the story in Narnia, goes into Narnia. She's the little kid that goes into Narnia, and she hears about the great king creator, Aslan, who's a lion, right? And she's like, well, I don't want to meet that guy if he's a lion, and he created all this. And so she says to one of the characters who lives in Narnia, so is he a lion? Is he safe? Can you go near him? And the character responds, safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. What, what is keeping you from God? Experience the fullness of what, what God offers you in his son, Jesus. I think for most of us, it's because there's parts of our life that are off limits and that we want to hold tight to. And we're afraid if we get too close, Jesus is certainly going to ruin it. 
What is it that's off limits? Your money? Your kids? Your weekends? Your reputation? Your career? Your freedom? Christians do this too. Christians do this by boxing God in. This is how Jesus works. This is how it works best. Some of you are more intellectual in your faith, and so the way that God operates is theology, right? Jesus certainly did not give us emotions, so that should not be a part of your faith. And things like the Holy Spirit that you can't control are dangerous. Stay away from those. Others of you have come from the experience of the charismatic. And so if you cannot experience it emotionally, viscerally, hear from God in the moment, then it can't be from God, right? God doesn't work through ritual or theology. And I'm sort of joking there, but we, we actually box God in. We assume based on our experience and how God's been meeting us recently that that's the only way he can do it. Some of you just want to be good people. Go to church occasionally. You don't want anything to do with theology or experience. You just want to be normal. And your great fear is that one day, if you get too close to Jesus, you're going to become one of those fanatics that like raises your hand in church when people are singing. And so you either won't sing at all or you just put your hands in your pockets and hope that they just get stuck there, right? Because like, what if something happened and you just, you know, like, you don't want to be one of those weirdos. Like, (sighs) you just want to be normal. What are you afraid of? Jesus knows what you're afraid of and he says, don't don't be afraid. I want you to know me. He's not gonna do anything to you that you're not, you know, like, I don't think. We assume Jesus already agrees with what we think. We want a Jesus that blesses what we're doing. And we miss who Jesus is. The disciples ran with him all the time. They still couldn't figure it out, right? There they are in the boat. He calms the storm. And they're like, who is this? You've been with him. What do you mean, who is this? Jesus has been talking about going to the cross constantly. And then one time he's talking about it and Peter says, well, if we go to Jerusalem and they're going to crucify you, let's go somewhere else. Certainly that can't be a part of the future, Jesus. I've got a plan for you. Get behind me, Satan. We always come at this Jesus thing with our own agenda, our own ideas on what's possible and what we want. But let me just offer you in closing that you need to experience, to know and really know who this God is. Not just intellectually, like you've heard about a movie, but like you've actually watched the movie. Not just like, oh, that's a restaurant that gets high reviews, but you've actually eaten at that restaurant. The experience of God through the spirit that dwells in you when you come to faith is far more gloriously awe-astounding and also far more personal than you could ever imagine if you've never experienced it. The almighty creator of the universe knows you. He actually knows all about you, everything you've ever done or thought, and he still loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, as we come reading stories that for some of us are hard to understand or read or buy into, I pray that you would speak to us through your presence and your word and people and your touch. Help us to see our need and give us a willingness to rise 
get up, not be afraid, and maybe even follow you. Amen. I've got a special treat for you all. Uh, many of you know that we went away as high school ministry to Breakaway, which is our huge discipleship retreat and worship retreat uh, last weekend. So I'm going to invite up Katie and Gray. Come on up. Um, I also want to take this opportunity while I come up here, hey, to thank you for praying for us. We took uh, about 84, 85 students, which is our biggest group to date. Uh, and it was an incredible weekend, an incredible weekend to get away and rest. But I've asked these two friends of mine to come and maybe share a little bit of how God used Breakaway Weekend to encourage them. Katie Noel. Um, so Breakaway was really great. And what Johnny was talking about today kind of reminded me of some things why I love Breakaway about how people in the Old Testament would go on the mountain and expect to see God. And I think that's kind of what we can do for Breakaway, going into it, knowing that we're expecting to see God and we're waiting for him to show up, and he really does. And another thing about having the moments we can look back on and that encourage our faith, um, for me, that's a lot of things happen at Breakaway. Like, for example, seeing stars just at Breakaway being away from everything, having the solitude, not having our phones, just being in relationship with each other and being able to have a weekend of Sabbath where we can just be with God and experience full life um, and just see him working and get away from the busyness that is here that consumes a lot of our lives and just being able to get away and reflect and reconnect with God. So that's why I love going to Breakaway. So thank you for your prayers and support in that. Well, let me introduce you. And now my friend Gray. <laughs> thank you, Rod. Um, so obviously, my name's Gray. Um, this is my second time at Breakaway, um, or was my second time at Breakaway. Um, one of the things I just absolutely love about Breakaway is just every time getting to grow in my relationships with others, whether it's like just people like high school, like high schoolers, they go to Young Life like as a whole or just like specifically this time, my small group, like just the sophomore guys. Um, I think it was just amazing because I think at one point, um, I can't remember which day it was, but we all just sat down and just like told each other our stories. And it was amazing just to see how vulnerable we could be with each other and just like get that deeper connection just from seeing where each other were. So I just think Breakaway, because of its like location and that the fact that you don't have your phone, so it's like people actually talk to each other, um, <laughs> it just provides you with an opportunity to really just be vulnerable with one another and like develop really deep relationships. So. Yeah, that's just my number one thing that I love about Breakaway. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you guys. If you guys could be please praying for us, uh, we are taking, yeah, close to 50 middle schoolers away next weekend for our middle school breakaway. So we need your prayers. Please pray for us.